Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Anthro to UX. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Frank Romagosa, senior UX researcher at CloudSort, previously at Chase, Wells Fargo, Intel, Doblin, and Sapient. Um, awesome. All great names. Uh, so a lot of great experience there. So Frank, thanks for coming on. Would you mind by starting and telling everybody about how you got interested in anthropology? Sure, of course. I'm glad to talk about that. It's an origin story to be sure. Um, I would say my interest in anthropology began long ago when I was a boy, although I didn't know to call it that as a kid. I was a kid, uh, grew up in New Orleans. I, was, I finished kindergarten at the age of five, and my parents moved us to Guatemala for two years. So I speak Spanish and English as first languages. And my father is a chemist, a Cuban chemist. So we were moving to, to, to work in a factory town in, in Guatemala. But so it was strange for me to be in a foreign country as a five year old boy learning math in first grade in Spanish. So I did first and second grade in Spanish in Guatemala. And I learned quickly the need to sort of understand differences in terms of the culture. I didn't think I didn't put in that language, but I learned that um that to make better sense of how to do sums and subtractions and multiplications and division in a foreign language, foreign to me, I did I couldn't just rely on translation, uno más uno son dos, one plus one is two. I had to sort of figure out how to add shapes and and, and then divide shapes. And so for a long time I was interested in, in language, not in terms of Spanish or English, which I spoke, but shapes. And so that's the, looking back for a long time since, I've always known that that was an origin for me, understanding how better to tell a story, how to listen to stories using language that are not my own. Um, of course, that's consistent with not being an American kid growing up, born in Michigan, but also being a child of two immigrants to this country, Cuban and Honduran. So my first language is Spanish and English. So I was always trying to figure out where I was from, which is a classic, I think, anthropological story. One does research a way to figure out where what is from at home. That's a classic anthropological I would say axiom. Um, for me, it was certainly true. I went to college on on the, the pa- with a passion for mathematics. For math, I was really good at math as a boy because of philosophy, and so I chose to go to college to study math. Partly because I was fascinated by then, at the age of seventeen, about how people have stories about how they came to be mathematicians long ago and today. So I was always collecting stories. About I'm going to take these off. Can you hear me still? Uh, I was interested. I was interested in how people tell stories, myself included, and um, and my own included. So I was passionate about mathematics, calculus, all those things, etc. But I was interested in the, the biographies of mathematicians. So I was also interested in, in how people come to be formed, and that has to do with cultural change and cultural difference. And for me, particularly, but also in general. So I went to college studying math. I was a super geeky kid about math, and then I discovered. That I wasn't passionate about mathematics. I was passionate about the stories about mathematicians. So I took time off from college. I went back to college next the following year and, um, I made, I did an experiment with myself. I, I'm here to study mathematics. I'm going to give up on that. I'm going to choose something to study myself. Anthropology. I'll try it out. Psychology and, psych- and sociology. It was like an experiment that I did with myself. I absolutely loved psychology. It was a really cool program that I read Freud and, and Piaget, all those people that we read in college. I didn't love social at the time. It was a, it was a tough course for me, but I, I fell in love with anthropology. That was, that was, a, that was the result of the experiment that I did, did on myself. 
So I became an anthropo- I started studying anthropology, anthropology post math, and I would say the last thing I, about those formative years was my first book that I read as a kid. I asked a, a, a friend of mine in college, what, should, "What do I? What do I do now? What do I study? What do I read in anthropology?" She said, "Oh, read this really fat book. It's really important. It might be hard, but you should try it out." It was Levi Strauss, Tristro Peaks. Oh my God, that, that that book is transformative. It changed my life. I didn't read all this, a big fat book, but I've always been passionate about him and and that book and and the, the phrases of Tristro Peaks, uh, Tropics is really important to who I became. I said the last thing, but I one more thing about this is that. What I love about Levi Strauss is he's a fantastic writer, and I learned that all these all these years, even as a boy growing up, telling a story about myself as a kid and in college and since. Although I'm a researcher in, in business and design and strategy, sometimes I'm a UX researcher as I am today. My passion is language and words and how we tell stories. And so, if anything is true about me as an anthropologist, I'm a writer more than I'm more than anything else. How I do research is by writing and understanding how people literally craft their stories, which of course connects to UX very clearly. How people craft stories as part of UX, but yeah, writing has been sort of the very formative thing for me. How we write and how I can write other people's stories as anthropology. So, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned a number of roles that you were in. And again, you know, Doblin and Sapien. And at the time in organizations like that, it wasn't UX, you know, generally speaking, it wasn't referred to yet as that. Um, so could you maybe, you know, given that you have that history and more of like kind of maybe what was maybe design research or design strategy. Could you share with everybody that listens, you know, what those roles were like then compared to maybe, you know, what UX is today? Sure. Of course. I'd be glad to speak about that. I think it's an important thing to remember the past where you've come from and our, our origin stories, all of us. I was lucky. I was in Chicago doing a PhD in anthropology and uh, I was going to be a professor, a teacher of a lot of teaching uh, and as, as the time came to make a choice between becoming a professor or becoming something else, I, I turned down a job that I had a really posh job in California, but it said that I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to do something closer to home. For me, home was discovering my passion for things that are, might be design-y or, or visually design style thing, partially because I had done research in Paris of all fancy places as an academic graduate student. I got to Paris to study how to tell those stories in France about migration, but that fell in love with film and visual storytelling in Paris, not surprising. And I decided to stay in Chicago and start working at a company I had heard of before called eLab. I'd heard of eLab. eLab is a well-known firm. Of course, many of us know who eLab are and who they were. eLab for me was foundational because it helped me do two things. It helped me discover my truer passions to, 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 to tell stories visually, but also it helped me become a better academic. eLab made me a better researcher. In my dissertation, I thank people who think it an academic dissertation, but also thank a famous a famous person named R. Robinson, Rick Robinson, the founder of, of ELAB, one of the founders of ELAB. So I thank R. Robinson and R. Mutt. R. Mutt is the fake artist that was, was created by, 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 by uh, Duchamp when he created the urinal. So R. Mutt is the signature that he gave the urinal. So I was interested in thanking uh, creativity, basically. R. Rick Robinson, we all know Rick Robinson, a great man, a founder, and a, a great, he's also a UC, UC person, University of Chicago person, but R. Mutt. So those, I was also, Thinking, looking back, I was thinking I was I was still playing with creativity. I'm an anthropologist by training, by disposition, but also I mentioned how people tell stories. So that's an example of, of how I was telling a story about myself, basically. R. Mutt and R. Robinson. <laughs> Rob, 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 Rick Robinson, I hear this story, he might laugh at me. R. Mutt and R. Robinson. So I, I turned down the California school, a postdoc there, and I stayed in Chicago, started working at ELAB. I fell in love immediately. About a week later, I was happy to not be writing 
with the keyboard on a screen, but writing oh, with an expo marker on a wall. That, that was a transformation for me. I love writing while standing and writing for an audience of two people versus an audience of myself. Um, and it's sort of it was a big transition point. It was a big discovery that actually I was, I was a better anthropologist doing that kind of work that I was might have been just doing very classic academic work. I have great respect for academia, but it, my true passion was, was with designers and with strategists, hence ELAP. So I was in ELAP for a few years, and I, I left, and I joined a company called Dobbin. Dobbin is the, the people who gave us ELAP. ELAB was created by two people who left Dobbin. So I was doing, basically doing a circle in Chicago. ELAB and Dobbin were across the street from each other, basically. So I was, ELAB gave me research and design and the power of the word and, joining research like me and design like others. Dobbin was research and design and strategy. So the, 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 the three different ways to understand a business problem, doing research, insight, design, creativity, and strategy. Building something future and in in any fashion, so innovation. So that, that those were very formative years from Elab and Dobbin together, research and design and strategy. I would say that no matter what I'm doing to this day, I always go back to that foundational moment because whatever title I might have today, whatever role I might have today, UX research, design strategy, uh, design strategist, strategic designer, I've had also also different titles depending on who I'm talking to and who I'm working with. My core passion has always been insight. This insight, anthropology, and research, creativity slash design, and strategy slash business. Those are the three. I think a lot of us can sort of can use that as a template to understand where we are. And that was certainly for me, research, design, and strategy from the beginning. So, uh, just out of curiosity, with eLab, were you there with any of the other, you know, also well known anthropologists? Um, I'm kind of drawing a blank on a number of them who were there, aside from um, Christina Watson, who is at UNT. I wasn't there with Christina Watson. I know her from other reasons, but I, I was actually, I think, the last hire before Eli was bought by Sapien. And I say, I think I was last because Dory Tussle, who's well-known as well, she and I were hired. She was hired soon after I was hired. So I've known Dory for a long time. Now she's a dean in Canada, at school in Canada. But that was... It's, I, I appreciate your question because to me that was a when I keep saying the word formative, Elab was formative itself as an organization because it was it was changing how we think in business about what insight means for for business purposes. Long ago, as we might know the story, it, research was focus groups or just doing a survey, which is one way to research, which is fine. But Elab was very, to me very important because in Dublin, I should say as much as Elab because it was founded in in the in the crucible of Chicago design. The Bauhaus, the new Bauhaus, all the stories that we know from ID Institute of Design uh, were part of how I, I was brought up, uh, being aware of the Institute of Design, which is literally was 20 minutes from University you know, of Chicago. So there was a very small space in, in the middle of the south side of Chicago, which was very important to uh, how this was, I would say, very foundational for me and for people like me, anthropologists and others, Christina, Dory, lots of people. To build on the strategy component a bit, you know, strategy... Um is, well, as I've said on this podcast or one of the podcasts many times, you know, I come from a business background. And so, you know, we're, we, we're sort of steep in strategy. And I find that strategy is often thrown around, you know, kind of loosely, at least based on how we might understand it in business, you know, in like kind of classic MBA, B school type stuff. And so what, you know, I guess what the question is, what does strategy mean for you? And, how do you bring that into your work, you know, as, well, I guess you would say yourself as a, as a strategist, but, you know, in a sense, as an anthropologist? 
It's a great question because a lot, a lot of phrases that we might use strategy or design research, or they get, they get, they want to be owned by the different practices. And, and for me personally, I think that the, the pleasure of, of working, whether I'm a researcher or strategist or working with designers or business people is we all try to co-own the, the ideas. And, and for me, strategy as anthropology works in design and business for me has always been about helping build the future. Uh, so that, that, that's, a, that's a strategic endeavor. It might require do the, the, the hard work, the nuts and bolts to figure out how to build this product today, how, how to, how to, how to, how to, how to make people aware of this product today. Maybe the today is we try it in this fashion, a small fashion, but in, in, in half a year's time, in a year's time, we sort of expand the, the, the breadth of that, that offer. So that's a very strategic, that's a very almost business school, business style approach to strategy. That's an approach to strategy, which I think is important. For me, strategy, Again, going back to my, my core as an anthropologist is about understanding how to build human futures and, and what people need, want, and desire versus what, what a company wants people to want and desire. So we begin with putting, of course, the, the human person at the center of the equation. So my job as a researcher, as a strategic researcher, will always entail uh, helping my colleagues, whether senior executives or my me colleagues understand, we can have strategic questions to help 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 drive the SKUs or the product product outlay but also we have to sort of make sure that we always put the, the person I, I want to say the use the word user because that's a very common thing to say the user but i want to put the human being the person at the center of the story to make what we're trying to build whether it's a brand a business offer a new product a new a new service lots of the things that we build in business i want to always make sure to strategically speaking that we can have a, we, we make the person my mother your mother you or i whomever people in general across the planet the center of the business problem and 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 a core beneficiary of the solution. We want to make money, of course, but we also want to help people uh, build their own lives and help have their own futures. Again, that's a more humanistic strategic point of view. At what point did you start picking up on the term UX? It's a great question. Um, I was, I was, I was aware of something that was to do with, you know, user experience. Uh, even when I was younger in Chicago at Elab, because we kept hearing, uh, words that were being used by our colleagues far away in, in places like Sweden or Northern Europe, that people were doing UX sort of things. They, we kept learning, hearing these phrases at Elab and also at Zoblin. And, and so I was became aware that was, I didn't know if then it was a coming, um, uh, 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 weather weather change but but there's something something's going on in the world that was very uxy it seemed it seemed very northern european at the time uh very clean lines and very 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 well done i was also aware of things like philip's design which i was a big fan of philip design when i was getting started and i was fascinated about how there's a different way to think about design in europe and philip's design an example of this is how there's they're much more they're very they're great at understanding early on why use how users can matter how we can design around users and that's very sort of european style um I became, so I was aware of it for a while, but I, I began to sort of recognize that the, the, the seas had changed in the United States. And so UX became a bigger thing and bigger thing and bigger thing. And so much so that now, although my title right now is, is a senior UX researcher, uh, I always say that, that I've learned for myself and from colleagues that, that what I am wanting is an anthropologist who works in design and in business. And I will always go back to my core beginning. UX is partially what I do, but it's certainly hopefully not the only thing that I do. Not to say UX is a bad thing, it's a great thing, but I, I, I tend to want to sort of always build beyond the constraints of categories. They get us jobs, they get us roles, but we should always, I think, I, I tell my colleagues who are younger as well, always try to find your core passion and build 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 what you're doing in, in 
in work terms around that core passion, not the other way around. Make the core passion always don't let go of your core passion. Some people are writers, some people are actors, some people are, are dancers. They all we all have something to say about UX. A dancer can teach you about UX, as can a chef. We can all do something UXy. It's 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 human nature. I'm a humanist. I can't believe I can't I admit it. <laughs> In terms of, so you mentioned some constraints there. Um, I want to get to that of what constraints you might see UX as maybe a label or a discipline might, might create. But before we get to that, um, you mentioned, or, or we're kind of talking about really a transition here from, you know, earlier design research, design strategy roles to what is called UX today. And so once you've made that pivot, you know, was, or was there anything you needed to do, you know, given the experience you had and given some of the names, or were you able to just sort of step into the UX role without, you know, any, any major convincing that you have the skills? Again, another great question. Um, I think as a, as a learner, I'm always learning new practice. That's what you do as a young academic anthropologist. You're always learning other people's ways of habits, basically. That's why anthropology is a study of habits in many ways. So I was learning a new set of habits called UX research. And so I was, I was, I, I was new to the system. I had to learn what that could mean. So I was almost, I, my approach was almost as, as though I was doing once again, an anthropologist. My field work was understanding what UX means, how core cool its predictions, what people do, what are its rituals, what are its passion points, all the things that we do as researchers, I was bringing to, to my, my, understanding this new world called UX research because I was not becoming part of it. I was, my, I had, a, I had a role where I was called, I was an actual UX researcher. So I, said, I, I, I was given this role as a good role to have, but also I had to do my job. I also had to learn how to do my job. So it was, it was always in, in tandem. And I, 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 my approach was as an anthropologist, I, I was, I was studying what UX means to people and how I could, how I could learn that language. So, so I was learning without a doubt. I'm always learning. And, um, I would say that quite honestly, part of the escapade of learning was also recognizing to always, as we know, as researchers in business, to always be, be uh, agnostic and, and purposely naive. That's our job, right? To, to not have a pain, not, not, not to opine. So I had to figure out, I, 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 I had to learn the system, even though it's not something that I studied in school. I didn't go to college to study. I went to anthropology. I went to anthropology school. I went to college to study anthropology called anthropology school. Um, uh, but, but, you know, at the same time, although I'm an anthropologist by training, I'm also a kid at the mathematician. So I, I have a sense of what it means to create formal systems because as a boy, that's what I did for fun. I, I understand how people create systems, whether axioms or postulates or, or geometry or algebra or topology, all those are systems. So, so to me, UX was not unlike those systems that I did as a kid. So I was, I was learning about UX by delving into my own intellectual and educational biography and Again, I didn't go to school to study UX, but I learned it over time. And now it makes sense to me. I'll give you a quick example, a quick, quick example. Long before UX came to my, to my, to my, my, in my field of vision, I remember my, my first, first shot at eLab. I was doing research for a project and, and I, I loudly and happily and probably said, Oh, we have to do some, 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 uh, some, 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 uh, some, we have to, we have, we have to, we have to do some, some basic philosophical research about how people understand concepts. And I kept talking about this language that's very academic language, and people said, "Oh, you mean a context research?" And I was put back, and I said, "I know, I, I mean, I mean, we have to, we have to talk about ontology, <laughs> and and think about this. I'm sitting and talking about ontology, which is very academic and old school, and my colleague was saying, let's talk about context research.' So my job, even then, was to figure out how to translate my own formation to things that can be used 
in the world of physics. And now I, I, I haven't said the word ontology in a zillion years. I know what it is. I know what it, but, but you know, you learn, you learn over time. So I think part of learning, especially if you're not trained in this fashion for me was discovering how things are constantly translatable. Sometimes they're slightly off. Sometimes they're not translatable at all, but learning is an act of translation. Um, uh, one last thing you asked me, uh, I think the challenge for me has always been that we academic in academia we tend to love long term research. We can do research for a year. I went to Paris for two years to do academic research. Who does that? Uh, two years would be a lifetime it, to me. Research might happen in one week. I did research last week in LA. That was one week of research. That's it. And so that's very tactical, not strategic, and which is one another way to understand the rubrics that we use in UX research. But I did. I went to LA from New York City to do research for one week. Well, for two days actually. I, I was there for one week, but two days of research. That's that's research. That's a kind of research. It's it's, it's what I learned. I, when I, there's other kinds of research. That's one kind, which is fine. So I'm going to come back to that, but just to pick up on I've said so much. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's great. Um, but to just pick up on the previous comment I made. So once you got into you know into this UX space, what constraints have you seen? I would say one of the chief constraints that I experienced as a researcher doing UX research, research is that that. Often my, 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 my most immediate interlocutors are my colleagues, which are great. And, and also the business itself has requirements on us as researchers. And some of those requirements can be dodgy if we have to manage them well because the client, the, our business needs, which I respect, wants us researchers and designers something together to figure out a solution tomorrow, which is fine for the needs of business. But my job often is to, to, to impart the fact that we can, I can get you an answer tomorrow, but if we wait four more days and I can get you a better answer for these reasons. So part of my job as a researcher is just not just acquiescing to the research being asked to me, but to help, help my, my colleagues, my, sometimes my, my client, my clients internally understand what the actual ask is. It's always a question of, it's always for me, the hope is to help develop an ask, even if it's a long-term ask. Let's say I did a project for until many years ago, which was a, a year-long project. That was a long, long ask. Or I, I can do projects that my, the ask might be literally one week, and that's fine too. My job is research to figure out how to not just do the work, but also how to make every moment of interaction a way to sort of explain how research could be just a little bit it, I'm sorry, it, how the, 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 the asker, the, the, the making of the request, ask the question in a, in a stronger fashion. I'm always, well, I'm always going to help people ask questions in that way, not just m- myself doing research to a, a participant, but rather my colleagues asking questions of research itself. It's all about helping us learn how to understand each other. Going back to that comment on, you know, quick research being tactical versus strategic. Um, so obviously, you know, one of the questions that seems to be floating around UX right now is maybe how effective is it if it is so quick and it is, as you put it, more tactical. Um, you know, my take is they probably both have a place uh, and you got to make sure you're doing the right kind of research for the right kind of question. Um, <clears throat> so I'd be curious to hear, you know, your input on that, not from the perspective of like, how did you get acquainted with doing quick research, but just, you know, how do you see it fitting into the business and what do you do when maybe somebody's asking for the wrong type of research, you know, the wrong question? Those are great questions that they're, they're super important to what we do in, in the practice of this business that we are all, all, all involved in. 
I, I think of timelines a lot. I think of roadmaps a lot. And for me, part of an answer that I give to a client who's asking me to do a project or a colleague who's also asking me to do a project is to begin by saying, what is our timeline? And, and because that helps us help as a very common shareable language. What, what do you want to, what does this research want to accomplish that you're asking to do for your needs? I want to understand the, the, the my, my, the asker's needs, whether it's a business person, maybe it's a strategist, maybe it's a business, maybe it's an executive. It doesn't matter who it is, but my, my first, Impulse is to always ask questions of the questions that are being asked of me, which is not a rude thing to say because it helps me better answer the question. Um, it goes to the timeline because sometimes the question is literally, can you, can you make this, can you help me figure out if this bunch go on the upper left or the upper right? That's a super technical question. So basically it's a, it's a test of, you test, we talk to five people and you have your answer. It's a very classic, clear, fast UX question. Top right or top left? That's, that's a classic question that we have. But we have so many other kinds of questions that we might, we might ask. We might be asked, do you want the buttons to be on the left or right side of the screen? Or do you want there to be a, do you want the, the, the interaction to be a sound? That's a different question. It's a more strategic question. Or do you want it to be, uh, 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 you're wearing, a, you're wearing a, a wristband and it buzzes. That's a different, the same, same side, same side of the input, but a different kind of answer. So that's already just the very specific, how to, how a product might interact with the human. Uh, on a screen, by, 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 or something, or something by, something that shakes your hand. Or even broader, those are technical questions in various fashions, but you can keep building out. We can ask the question, why do we, why do we, why do we have to alert people in general? Why can't we have something else happen that's different than just alerting? That's more strategic questions. So all those, are, I, I want to always lay out the, the field of, of possibilities to help the, the person understand this question lives in this bucket of time one week or one month. This other question you might ask later on might live in, in six months of time. So my, my answer will always involve, I hope, being able to, to do the work, but also to, to, to place it in a time timeline. And I'm a big believer in, in timelines being part of how research does its work at best because it's a very strategic thing to do. It's not just answering the question, yes, no, maybe, rather, yes, no, maybe, but tomorrow it'll be si, no, y tal vez in Spanish. I just made, you know, just an example. It just shakes the system. Um, so there, I put it differently. I think research often gets asked tactical questions. And a lot of people who I know who are my colleagues will always say, we get asked so many tactical questions. So I'd like to do something more strategic. I'd like, I'd like to think bigger than just the, the yes or no question. And it's a very common thing that happens in UX research. I think our, I can say for myself, but I think that it wouldn't be incorrect to say many people who do work in UX research would love to be able to find ways to always have strategy in mind in some fashion, not just doing the tactics of A, B, or C. So what would you suggest people do to help other business stakeholders realize that we are capable of playing a role in strategy and should be, you know, have a seat at that table? A seat at that table, that's important. I think one of the things that I have done for a long time since I started working in this business is is to is to find subtle ways that that ask questions without being so so boldly out loud about them. Um, I did a project many many years ago for a bank called Citibank, and and we're doing a, a project for city cards to help bring to help create what was called a thank you card for city cards. So we're doing research in the United States among other people who use credit cards, which is fine. We did research, I organized research for this project. Um, Car, I did some car studying, I did some interviews, I did some, some diary studies, etc. 
But I said, let's do a journal study to understand how people in this country use credit cards. We can do a journal study, but let's have, let's have a study translated to three different languages to understand how other people in other cultures do the same thing. People are shopping for things in Japan. Let's, let's do the same study in Japan, Japanese. People are shopping for things in, in Sweden. Let's do the same study in Sweden. And people start shopping for things in France. Let's do the study in France. Because I have a certain that by showing that there are other ways that people do the same things, we all shop for things in these countries, Japan, Sweden, France, then I could use a quick camera study by translate, in translation to help our client, who is an American client, Citibank, based in New York City, to understand that they, they, they have much, there's much more to do than just organizing. It helps them understand their finance for the United States because we saw, for example, a quick example is that people use, people use, people use cards. This is a client card. The client was a credit card company for, for city card. People use cards to things that are never understood in this country back then. Japanese, a Japanese man only use a card different than, than, than would a, an American person and vice versa. And so helping people see beyond their American location was a big deal for the client. That's, that's, that was subtle. It was easy to fit into the project and it, it, it made a big splash, I think, because people people like to be surprised. People like to get worse results, worse results, but also people like to be surprised. Our job is to surprise people. So, and well, why do you think surprise is so important? What do you think that does to maybe help somebody appreciate the you know the the insights? I think surprise is important because it, I think like a lot of things in business. Even insights are commoditized, and people just expect to have us have us do it have a result fast because we, we we our expectations are met by 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 delivering commoditized insight, which is one way to, to research. Surprise helps people tickles people by saying, "I never thought about that. I, I can't." I, and people like we all like surprises, and no matter how stolid and 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 focus we are on our work, whether I'm an EVP or a CEO of a company, I still want to be surprised because because I. People, it's a human. Human beings like surprise. We like we like being kids. Yeah, there's a pleasure in surprising somebody who's a senior person who's a boss of some big company, and they will say, "Oh, I like it because this surprised me. It tickled me." It's good to if you can if you get that response, it's a big win. Clients like to be surprised. We have to find we have the secret solutions. We have the secret ways into our research so we can elicit those surprises. Not always, but if it's possible, it's something to aspire to. And I mean, of course, that that implies that you have, you know, the kind of insights that lead to that. But you might also have them and not present them in a way that really creates a sense of, you know, uh, of excitement. And so, you know, through your now many years of working in this broad space, you know, not just UX but design research, um, you know, what have you learned in when? presenting insights to, you know, more senior individuals at organizations? Sure. I, I think about your question a lot. And, and one of the things that I've, I've, I've always thought about when I think about delivering insights that are in a surprising fashion is not just content, which is one kind of surprise. Oh, people think of it this way. That's content. I think people might be more surprised if they're, they're surprised by a form. And we all used to receiving insights by PowerPoint decks or or synopses or bullet points. Those are those are handy, commonly used, and in some ways overly relied upon forms of, of delivering an insight or a set of findings. There are other ways to deliver insights that that surprise you because it's not the norm to be be shown an insight via 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 via. By a, by a sound or shown inside by a, by by just something absolutely different. So I think that if if one can find ways to, and I have 
been lucky enough to do this several times, find ways to deliver insights that are not just about another PowerPoint deck with five bullets and, and, and a header, which is what we do for a living. But there are ways to actually make people take notice. Surprise happens when people look up and say, oh, this is not normal. And, and, um, I, um, I did a project for, again, the same project for, for city cars. And I was at, at the client site with, uh, with the client manager, the client boss who was the CEO of the company at the time. And we were doing a workshop and, and, and she was, uh, my, she, I was in her team and we were, we had the pink, we were doing a workshop. So our group was given pink sheets. Other group people were given blue sheets, red sheets. We were the pink group. And, and I remember telling a story to her kind of nervous because she was the big boss and, and she was so tickled by that story. But I told her story about how why two people who are married or Iowa farmers don't care about rewards points because they're not going to get on a plane go from Des Moines, Iowa to London. They don't do that. They want they want their credit card spent to be for their new baby. They, they just had a baby. They want they would love a way for their their baby to go to college someday. So they they imagine why can't we have our spend? We buy we buy produce. We buy feed. We buy equipment for the farm. Why can't our spend using this card be devoted to our daughter's education? We just had eighteen years from now. When she's a college girl, that was a big deal. I told that at the, at the workshop, and the man, the, the the boss, the CEO, loved that story. She repeated it constantly afterwards. So, so, so to me, things like that—that's a content story. But, but, but things like that are wins because it's not it's not it's not a slide, it's not a PowerPoint deck. It's just one insight that 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 carried that actually bore a lot of weight on. It made made it plays her in ways that that made everything make that we did make sense. So sometimes just one nugget that. That, that catches somebody. And I'll never forget a story. I just, a, a story of a farmer and his wife and, and their new kid and the, the boss at, C, at, at Citibank, they connected. You, so we, we just kind of looked up there in that question, but you also lead people. So sort of, um, you know, to, to sort of point it in the other direction, what would you maybe suggest, you know, at this point, is there anything that jumps out that you're seeing that, Junior researchers, you know, whether that's people who need who are looking to enter the field or who maybe just entered, you know, is there anything that they should be thinking about, should be doing? Uh, you know, is there anything you've noticed that's a gap that you'd like to see? As a former teacher, somebody who actually loves teaching, and, and the question I ask myself as a teacher always is, of course, as well. Uh, one thing that I notice that people often when we get started in a profession that we're doing, whether it's UX or whatever, when, when we become professionalized, we lose sight of the fact that we have an initial passions and so we get distracted by practice which is what we do when we go to college we get a degree in ux research or whatever so that's it forms us it literally forms us but i think sometimes it's it's helps to remember there's a reason why you chose that path to begin with to go back to your core origin story we all have origin stories and so that story guides you not every if i if we have 10 people who are doing ux research they all came to the same practice for different reasons some people might they were helping shovel snow for their older grandmother in in, in michigan other people might be doing something for other reasons in louisiana but we all have stories that we tell ourselves that we get us to where we're going so i think Folding our practice in our background is part of what makes us stronger researchers. Because research, no matter how much we want to be um, agnostic and 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 scientific, there's a reason why we ch- we choose to study people as they engage the world, also known as user experience research. And there's nothing. There's I think it's important to remember why we're doing what we're doing, not just because it's, it's a paycheck. Paltry it might be for junior people. I hate to say it, but but you know we we, we go to school instead of we, but but we 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 become we, we passion drives us to this vocation or avocation. Uh, we were we were drawn to it before we 
we chose, we don't choose UX research because it's a good degree. We choose it because it makes sense to us since we're kids. So I think it's important to remember for anybody who's doing this, because it helps, helps, if you remember where we come from as people, individuals, then it helps guide us how we, how we apply UX practice. In my case, Mary, in my case, John, in my case, Trevon. It doesn't matter who it is. We all have different experiences of why we come to this practice and we, we don't just humanize it. We, 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 we make it our own. There's nothing wrong with doing it our own way. That's very nice. Uh, way to maybe summarize everything. And so I wonder, do you have any, um, anything coming up that maybe you'd want everybody to know about? Sure. I have a big, big, big passionate believer in this conference called Epic. Many people here might know Epic. Epic stands for Ethnographic Practice and Industry Conference. It's been going on for probably 16 or 17 years now. This past two years, it was held remotely. Once it was based in Sydney, Australia. The last year it was held in, it was based in San Jose, California. This year, we're going back to being in person. This year, the conference will be in, in the first week of October in Amsterdam. It's a it's a great conference. I'm a, I'm creating it with a colleague from Hong Kong, instead of Pekka Kuchas. I, I love Pekka Kuchas. A, for, a forum. Going back to the word forum, a forum presentation. There's papers, there's case studies, at Pekka Kuchas, which are six minute, forty second long, twenty second, twenty slide presentations of a, of, of an idea. Not a paper with a thesis, but very playful, very loaded, very much more creative than, than a paper might be, which is cool too. So I'm doing Epic this year in October. I love Epic. I mean, a lot of people might love it. It's a great thing to do if you can't make it or go online and you can find it that way. Also, I'm going to, to Berlin in late September to do a, a workshop. Um, I think you'll be there, Matt, as well. You might be going there. Um, it's, it's the why the world needs anthropologists. And, and some colleagues and I are doing a workshop around that very subject uh, for the financial services world. It's AC Finance, and um, so we'll be there doing running this workshop. And so that's a lot of travel. Oh, that's welcome after many years of no travel. I know. I got on my first plane ride two years. I got on my first train ride a year ago, and it was it's shocking to do that. I, I, we're all brand new to this world of trains. It was like being a child. And I, yeah, I I took my second, third plane flight last week since the pandemic. Well, I hope you have a great time in Europe at both of those conferences. And if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, where could they find you? I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not sure. My LinkedIn address is Frank Romagosa. It's on LinkedIn, Frank Romagosa. And uh, that's an easy way to find me. That's probably the best way to find me, LinkedIn. Well, thanks, uh, Frank. Thanks for, for joining today. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, man. Thank you for chatting with me. And I appreciate your, what you're doing in general for this project. It's really cool. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotous.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.